This is the, oh my goodness. This is the last week of our eight-week fight with the PA system in this room. And uh, we just discovered a second switch. Just a little bit. So feel free to interfere. John, are you hearing me? Good. We did a voice check this afternoon, but uh, that was before we discovered the switch that turned the upper speakers on. This is the eighth and final week of Rare Book School's 2002 sessions and is in many ways the most pleasant of all of the occasions that we have had this year, and there have been many pleasant ones. Linda Wilson's gift of 350 Margaret Armstrong bindings is one of the most consequential that we've ever received and one of two or three of the largest gifts we've ever had from an individual. The Book Arts Press and its principal activity, Rare Book School, maintain laboratory collections. We do not have a library as such. And our purpose in maintaining collections like this and others that I'll be talking about is so that they can be used in the classes that we teach now throughout the year. Rare Book School 2002 hosted classes in January, March, May, June, July, and August. And really, we're prevented from holding classes these days only by the football schedule. School has offices in Alderman Library, which is the flagship building of a system that owns nearly five million volumes. There is clearly no reason whatever why we would want to compete with a collection of that size, diversity, and importance. But Rare Book School puts its collections together, its teaching collections together, in ways that are difficult and in many cases simply impossible for libraries. A friend of mine likes to say that a librarian is someone who can put something away and find it again. And when you have five million different books, you can see the importance of that. When you have a collection that is a small fraction of that number, and I suppose there are 50,000 items in one collection or another at the Book Arts Press, it's possible to find them even though they're arranged in funny ways. There's an interesting small instance of just this principle at work in the exhibition tonight. The Margaret Armstrong bindings have been arranged by curator Sarah Haiklin in chronological order by the date in which they were designed. It's a simple thing, but to my knowledge, no one has ever seen Margaret Armstrong's bindings in chronological order before. Libraries keep such works in main entry order, and a collector would be very unlikely to put them in chronological order by date of design, which is, mind you, often quite different from the title page date. Many of Margaret Armstrong's bindings went through many editions. Others were on reprints of classics, which were in some instances published more than 50 years before she did a design for them, Washington Irving, for example. We've been collecting cloth bindings for many years, and the 
collections of books which are above and below the exhibition in this room represent the major part of our cloth binding holdings, which include, by the way, a good many Margaret Armstrong bindings. It is impossible to collect American decorative cloth bindings without collecting Margaret Armstrong. She is one of the most prolific of all American binders, and uh, there is a real argument for saying that she is the best of all American design binders as well. No name immediately occurs to me, indeed, in her league at all, not only in excellence of design, but in uh, the extent to which they have seized the popular imagination. In 1992, Bill Royal, the retired Williamsburg printer, gave us about 150 Margaret Armstrong bindings. And Paul Banks had given us... uh, slightly earlier, about 75 more. This, in addition to the 100 that we had acquired along the way, one at a time, totals about 350 bindings, so that the Wilson collection doubled our holdings. This is, however, a most inadequate way of describing the gift, because Linda Wilson was not afraid to spend money on a book. The key to Collecting American cloth bindings is condition. It is easy to get them in poor condition, not difficult to get them in good condition, difficult to get them in excellent condition, and virtually impossible these days especially to get them in fine or mint condition. The Wilson collection had many uh, copies that were as good as could be hoped for, so it is a superb complement to our own collections of uh, books which in many cases I think would most fairly be described as reading copies. These collections are binding collections have come a very long way indeed since 1972 when the Book Arts Press was founded at Columbia University as an adjunct to the then brand new program in rare book librarianship and courses for training antiquarian booksellers which I established in that year in New York City. Many of you here have had experience in humanities departments and know that it is very difficult in academe to get money for anything except salaries. Then the typical department will have a budget of 75 or 80 percent salaries, perhaps even higher than that, so that there's very little left in the budget for anything else. One of the most difficult things to persuade a department at either Columbia or UVA to do is to produce $200 for an evening speaker. It seems just beyond the resources of a department, which in some instances can stretch to 114 people. But it's money that's hard to find because so much money in department is committed. It is equally, and for the same reason exactly, equally difficult for departments in most humanities operations to find money for uh, bibliographical toys, for videotapes, for examples of things, including bindings, to bring into class. And the humanities have a long tradition of relying on the holdings of libraries like the UVA library rather than trying to amass collections of their own. When I started teaching the history of the book at Columbia in 1972, I was fortunate in that I inherited a collection of materials from
from my predecessor, Alan Hazen, who was also my dissertation advisor. This consisted principally of collections of paper, this being Alan Hazen's great interest. And those of you in the descriptive bibliography class will see a number of examples that came to us through Alan Hazen in the museum tomorrow. We had very little at Columbia when the program started. We had no presses, we had no type, we had no examples of bindings, we had no reference books, we had no examples of illustration, we had uh, pretty much nothing except, as one of my students said at the time, two extension cords. Fortunately, when Richard Darling, the dean of this library school at Columbia, gave us a room to set up a bibliographical laboratory, he also gave us entree to collections in the Columbia University Library in whose building we found ourselves, Butler Library. In the 1930s, the head of rare books at Columbia, Helmut Lehmannhaupt, and staff members set up a laboratory press of their own within special collections. They called it the Book Arts Press, for what reason I do not know. When I set up a laboratory press in 1972, I co-opted that name, which went back to the early 1930s because I thought it would make us look more respectable. It was a silly decision, I think, looking back on it, since the Book Arts Press has never been concerned with book arts and is not a press. But we did, in fact, borrow two iron hand presses from the old Book Arts Press, a 1843 Arho & Co. Washington and a table model Imperial uh, Copen Stanhope Press that we did all our printing on until 1977 when we bought a much larger Washington-type press. We also inherited Lehman Haupt's preferences in printing type. In the 1930s, when he set up the laboratory press at Columbia, he was uh, greatly impressed by Bauhaus and its design, with the result that the type he purchased was Weiss Roman. This is a typeface which I am happy to report has now almost entirely disappeared. It's a Roman face. Its chief characteristic is that the letters look upside down. So that with the capital S, for example, the upper bowl is larger than the smaller bowl. And in the lowercase h, the stem is wider at the top than it is at the bottom. It's a very curious face to work with. We had a lot of it, and I grew to hate it uh, greatly by the time we were finished with it. Our first duty in setting up teaching collections at Columbia, because I desperately wanted students to set type and print it, was to acquire uh, enough type so that students could set projects. And though we had Vice Roman in 14 sizes, we had no more than two cases of any of it. Fortunately, at the time, in the early 1970s, we are seeing the last gasp of letterpress in New York City, where the old, the great old monotype and uh, advertising display houses were selling out their hot metal because they were all going photo composition. So you could buy type uh, basically for the cost of the case that the type was in, which meant usually a uh, dollar uh, a 
pound for the type and the case included. A type, a uh, tray of type loaded weighs between 35 and 50 pounds. So it wasn't an absolutely inconsiderable expense, but it really wasn't very much and wasn't thought to be very much even at the time. It was, however, difficult to get type that was actually useful for setting probes because most of the advertising typographers had display type in their cases. So if you wanted uh, 5,000 pounds of hobo or something like that, you could get it. But if you were looking for Garamond or Caslon or Baskerville, it was a different matter. This was type that no printer ever had because printers would make that type with linotype or monotype or Ludlow or whatever it is they made type with and would never bother to have any significant amount of it sitting around in cases. One of the School of Library Service faculty members, Ray Troutman, lived upstate in New York City, and he was acquainted with a funeral director's widow who gave us, through him, a selection of type that her business had used to print memorial cards. This gave us a considerable run in tiny amounts of uh, Cheltenham. And a case to put it in, which those of you who have been around for a while know is the old festive board, something which went out into the trash just last week, nearly 30 years after it came in. It's a nuisance from beginning to end. What you really want is large amounts of type if you're going to have students set with it. And by large amounts, I mean several hundred pounds something which hasn't existed in printing houses in 100 years because of the coming of machine composition at the end of the 19th century. In your handout, the first five pages represent some of the quaint vocabulary that the Book Arts Press has found itself developing over the years of which Festive Board is an example. And I put that in to uh, give you a taste of what happens when you're building uh, profoundly eccentric collections of the kind that ours are. You find yourself naming things. It's like the pilgrims in Massachusetts in 1620 where nothing has a name. And it looks like an elm, so you call it an elm. It looks like a robin, and you call it a robin, even though it's nothing of the kind. In 1974, we had our first major gift, Maurice Annenberg, the retired Baltimore printer gave us 48 cases of wood type. They're presently in the Book Arts Press studio. They arrived sideways with the result that all of the type was in the back and behind and dumped. And we had a lot of fun putting together the uh, faces. There were far more than 48 faces. There were 48 drawers of the type. Some of them had several faces in them. The problem was the punctuation because there must have been 20 different 15 lines Roman, for example. We're still sorting it out. But we still had no type that was useful for sending books. Eventually, we began selling Christmas cards and the original Book Arts Press Valentines, which were actually sold for 25 cents each. The first Valentine, 60% of all mammals are nocturnal, uh, made us uh, nearly $50 selling it out of the door. And we were finally able to buy monotype 
in sorts in 14 point that is the basis of the Book Arts Press teaching collections. We have about 400 pounds of it now in uh, about 14 cases. This uh, is a simple thing, but when we started out this operation, there really was no money for anything other than what uh, the bibliographical equivalent of selling Girl Scout cookies door-to-door could produce. The first real laboratory sessions in the Rebbe program at Columbia University were held in the 1974-1975 year. And there I had an enormous piece of good luck. I had uh, what is almost certainly the best class that I ever had at Columbia in my 20 years there. In that class were John Bidwell, who started out at uh, as Richard Archer's last assistant in the Chapin Library at Williams, and then was successively curator of the Carey Collection at RIT, the librarian of the Clark Library at UCLA, the curator of graphic arts at Princeton, and most recently the Astor Curator of Printed Books and Bindings at the Morgan Library. Victor Cardell, music librarian successively at the University of Kansas and more recently UC San Diego. Inga DuPont, who's the head of uh, Reader Services now at the Morgan Library and has been for many years. Jeffrey Kamovitz, who started out in the Spencer Collection at New York Public and is now curator, as he has been for many years, of the Watkinson Library at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Richard Marcus of the National Archives. Lucy Marks, who started out as a rare book cataloger at Yale and then went on to the American Academy in Rome, to the Ryerson Art Library and at the Art Institute of Chicago, at the Morgan Library, and most recently in semi-retirement while she's raising children as a rare book cataloger in the Drew University Library. Bruce McKittrick of Bruce McKittrick Rare Books, Charles McNamara, for many years the curator of rare books at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Pamela Spence Richards, some of you might know her as Pamela Smith. She uh, was a professor at the School of Library and Information Science at Rutgers University for many years. Caroline Schimmel, who worked at Sotheby Park Burnett and was then executive secretary of the BSA, the Bibliographical Society of America, before retiring to full-time book collecting. Alice Schreier, now director for special, uh, of the Special Collections Research Center at the University of Chicago, which in lowercase prose means she's the head of special collections there, but for many years before that at Delaware, at the Library of Congress, and at Columbia. Samuel Streit, who started out as head of special collections at CUNY and for many years has been associate librarian for special collections at Brown University. These dozen students were all in the same class and represent only a third of the 36 people who were in the program that year. They're perhaps the best known ones, although there are many other distinguished graduates of that class. I still have a copy, which he tells me he does not, of Sam Streit's woodcut which he made in the illustration labs that year. In those days, I told them that I just wanted them to understand process so they could cut anything they wanted to. Sam responded by cutting a Doric column. Teaching illustration process is almost impossible without illustration examples to teach from. And in the 70s, 
we began buying prints one at a time from Argosy Bookshop in New York City. Soon thereafter, we discovered a remarkable shop, now gone, unfortunately, called Pageant Bookshop. Some of you may know it because it's the bookshop featured in Hannah and Her Sisters, the movie, run by a formidable uh, father-daughter team. I knew the daughter, Shirley Solomon, much better than uh, her father, who scared me. Shirley was wonderful in uh, providing vast numbers of cheap prints. And by cheap, I mean one and two and three dollars apiece. We eventually devised something which those of you who have any rare book school experience at all know well, the packet system, which, so far as I know, uh, is still pretty much unique with rare book school. It means buying a dozen copies of not the same print, which is usually impossible, but 12 prints from the same book or the same sort of book or the same periodical, and then uh, dividing them up and putting them into mylar folders so they won't self-destruct, because a lot of this stuff is pretty frail, and then uh, giving one to each student. The mylar folder doesn't prevent students from looking at the actual object. You can lift up the mylar and see in, and it's transparent anyway, but it keeps it from self-destructing when it's being passed around. The first pageant, the first packet uh, that we put together came from Pageant Bookshop, it was woodcut images from Gerard's Herbal, second edition, 1634. It cost $6 a piece. This was a problem with the packets because whereas $6 a piece for a print isn't very much, if you constantly are multiplying by 12, it adds up a bit. So it's $72 instead of $6 when you're buying them by the dozen. But we did get a discount. Packet number three, and these are still their numbers, were facsimile wood engravings from the illustrated Byron. Packet number 13 were the Polish worthies, which I thought for years were lithographs, but Michael Twyman uh, thought correctly were stipple engravings. I will never forgive the publisher. The title page says they're lithographs. It lied to me. And I fought a good fight on that one until finally somebody discovered a plate mark, which you're not likely to see in a lithograph, but are certainly likely to see in a stipple engraving. Packet 24, the Palais Royal Chalk Manor Lithographs of Portrait Heads. Packet 26, relief etchings given to us by Claire Van Vliet. And so it went until we had packets representing all of the major illustration processes. We cataloged uh, the illustration packet number 441 earlier this year. You can see how they work a little bit again if you look at your handout, pages 5 through 9. This is the cheat sheet that I teach the course from. And when people ask me questions, they uh, send me to this list, which refers me to the appropriate packet, which is what you're looking at with the numbers. So it's a good informal way of getting from process to the, uh, a particular packet that I need to illustrate it. You have to remember that We've been teaching illustration process in this program since the mid-1970s. Bamberg Gascoigne's book didn't come out until 1986. So there's no immediately obvious way to arrange a collection purchased as examples of process. Again, libraries will arrange prints reasonably enough by the name of the artist or occasionally by the name of the author of the book in which the prints find themselves. 
to arrange your collection by the process by which they are printed runs directly against the grain of most cataloging systems. Bamber Gascoigne's book on the identification of prints has sections on each of the processes, and we solved our problems by naming our packets, by giving our packets numbers that reflected Gascoigne's numbers. So if a packet, uh, so a packet will have two numbers, both its accession number and also what its process is. None of this costs a great deal of money, but it costs some. And one of the most generous acts of the School of Library Service, and there were many, to the Rare Book Program at Columbia, was permission to establish our own friends group. Those of you who are involved in academe know how rare this is, because it meant that I was allowed to set up a friends group which competed with the alumni ambitions of the school itself. The expectation, and quite correct one as it turned out, is that the people who would contribute to the Friends of the Book Arts Press would not generally be people who were likely to contribute to the School of Library Service. As of uh, about 10 of 6 this evening, there were 808 Friends of the Book Arts Press, or Friends of Rare Book School, as we tend to call them these days. That's up 8 since yesterday, by the way. I'm glad that so many of you were removed by my remarks last night. They contribute uh, now the better part of $100,000 a year. Now, that by university standards isn't a very large sum of money, but we spend about half of that every year on acquisitions. And this makes us lower middle class, even among ARL libraries, in what we spend every year. And since we buy really a lot of junk, it means that we are, and for many years have been, collecting at a fairly brisk rate. The illustration packets were the model for a whole series of other packets. We now have type packets, which are 12 leaves from the books from which we have extracted 12 illustrations, only in this instance showing text. And though we're a long ways from complete here, we can show typical pages from most of the major cities of Europe on a five or 10 year basis throughout the period after uh, 1600 to about 1900. We set up paper packets, again, 12 examples enclosed in mylar, and in this case arranged by whatever seemed interesting about them as regards their manufacture thus by watermark. So if you want to look at 12 full-scap watermarks or 12 uh, Strasbourg Bend watermarks, we can provide a packet with this. Our most recent major venture into packeting are the music packets. Those who were here earlier in the year know that practically every flat surface in the press room was covered with sheet music for about three months as we gradually assembled uh, to a considerable extent on eBay, I might add, uh, the packets that we needed. Don Crummel taught a course in the history of American music publishing here in May, and it was the first course of its kind, so far as we know, that was ever taught. But what we needed was 12 examples of the Andrews sisters. Now, imagine yourself as a music librarian cataloging your sheet music. 
you can see yourself doing it under Composer with some difficulty you might even be able to see yourself doing it under Lyricist but what about the, the, the name of the singer when you have 12 or 15 different versions of the song in your collections all of them with a different singer on the cover it can be done of course and you hope for added entries that will do it the difficulty is pulling the 12 Andrew sisters from 12 parts of the collection so they can come together to be taught with for perhaps 45 seconds because you also want to teach Frankie Lane and Frank Sinatra and Vaughn Monroe and Dinah Shore each for 45 seconds. It becomes almost impossible to pull a regularly arranged collection apart in such a way that makes it uh, at all useful for teaching purposes. We needed 12 sheet music covers with tie-ins to silent movies, of which there were many. We needed covers showing tie-ins to phonograph records, tie-ins to piano rolls, tie-ins to the talkies, tie-ins to television, tie-ins to Broadway musicals, tie-ins to movie musicals. We needed covers showing World War I and World War II. We needed covers with songs about motherhood, of which there were a vast reason for reasons we do not know at the beginning of the 20th century. There are 60-something music packets at the moment, and they all do just this. Fortunately, if you're not interested in the song, then it's quite easy to collect music very cheaply. Our going rate was about 50 cents per sheet music, bought usually in bulk. And this means that we don't get uh, stardust, but we don't need stardust because we're not collecting songs. We're collecting presentations. There's another instance of what I mean and uh, need constantly to emphasize about our collections when I say that they cut against the grain of normal uh, repository housing, cataloging, and use. Another of our significant acquisitions, and this one shortly after we came to the University of Virginia, were what we now call the Rendell Files. And you see a description of these in your handout on page 10. Kenneth Rendell and his wife Shirley McNerney Rendell are booksellers specializing in manuscript materials of all kinds, both at the top of the market and uh, in the middle. There is, fortunately for our purposes, relatively little bottom in the Rendell market, so they will on occasion purchase a collection because they want two or three items in it. They want the Kennedy and they want the Eisenhower. But that leaves them with a great many Martin Van Buren's and Franklin Purse uh, autographs that they don't really want. Now this is a bad example because both Van Buren and Purse have real value. But what would you do if you owned a complete collection of the signatures of the successive state senates of Kentucky, and indeed of all of the other state senates, and indeed of all of the other House of Representatives, thousands of them? I don't know why anybody did this, but somebody did, and the Rendells had it for 20 years in despair before finding a solution to their problem which is giving 
it to us and along with many, many, many other similar items. And you can see how we used it for our own purposes on page 10 because an autograph uh, often appears at the bottom of a letter and the letter, if it is typed, may far may be far more interesting as an example of the history of typewriting than it is of the history of the successive members of the Kentucky State Senate. So by arranging the collection according to physical properties, we've been able to put together, for example, quite a good collection on the history of the typewriter. And it's fun to see blue ribbons turning to black ribbons, for example. We have been working hard on the Rendell files. We have a volunteer, uh, the retired archivist of the University, Edmund Berkeley, coming in to work on it. And he uh, did an exhibition that some of you will have seen in this room earlier this year uh, using some of the material from the Rendell files. It teaches like a dream, especially to undergraduates. My undergraduates typically do not know what carbon paper is. So you see I have a long ways to go. And indeed, the one that really gets me is they don't know what typing paper is because they don't type. And I don't know what you call typing paper if you don't call it typing paper. Until 1989, when I taught bookbinding history, I had to take my students away from Columbia, usually to the Grolier Club, because we didn't have enough leather-bound volumes to show the different basic skins used in binding books. My knee, I believe. Uh, in 1988, we were given an enormous collection by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. A fascinating family named Sandgard was the cause of it. Richard Sandgard and his two sisters were born in the house that they died in 80 and 90 years later outside of Birmingham. Their father had helped build, helped design and build the Trans-Siberian Railway in the 1840s, and there was plenty of money. And the Sengards, all three of them, preferred each other's company to that of anyone else's, and none of them ever married. Richard and his sisters left their collections, and they were considerable. They lived in their house and simply bought everything that came out that was of interest for the better part of 70 years and with their parents' collections before them that came out in London. Richard and his sisters gave the collection to the Bodleian Library with the instructions that the Bodleian could have what it wanted, but they had to find another place where the material would be used for anything they didn't want. They could not sell. Bodley used this for many years as a way of thanking other institutions that had done them favors. So that, for example, when the Harding Collection came to Oxford in the 70s and was stored in the Regenstein Library at Chicago for a couple of years before it was moved across the Atlantic and the estate was settled, the uh, Bodleian responded by inviting Robert Rosenthal, the curator of special collections at the University of Chicago, of Chicago to go into the uh, Sandgard detritus and take what he wanted for the University of Chicago. There were more than 50,000 volumes left when he saw it. This continued for several years until it eventually occurred to Michael Turner that the Book Arts Press might be interested in going through it. My standards were 
consistently lower, I think, than those of anybody else who'd ever been through it, since incomplete books are uh, three-quarters of a book is three-quarters as useful as a whole book at the Book Arts Press. In almost every instance, we don't, after all, read any of our books. So uh, having complete ones is of no particular interest. Not only did Michael Turner arrange for us to have what we wanted from Sandgard, he then walked down the street and arranged for uh, Blackwells to send it to us. So that was uh, 20 enormous boxes of material. And those of you who look at end papers of our collections will see the Sandgard booklet that we uh, contrived on that occasion as a result. Absolutely wonderful material. Richard uh, Sandgard was a lawyer who worked in Birmingham and he liked bargains. He went by the barrel stalls between his office and the railway home every evening. And he bought uh, really gravely defective books, but the prices he paid are always in them, sixpence a shilling, one in six. And for Baskervilles and 17th century books, uh, this pleased him and it pleased no one else until we got to Sandgard, but certainly pleased us. It was the probably the largest and most important institutional gift that we've ever been given and really changed the nature of Rare Book School and the Book Arts Press. If you look around in the Book Arts Press suite of rooms, you will see collection after collection of books that have been put together for specific pedagogical purposes, frequently in supporting specific courses. One collection that we thought we would never be able to put together would be a satisfactory collection of reference books on the various fields that we offer courses in, because they are almost incredibly expensive, as all of you are grimly aware, putting together reference collections of your own. I had a student named Alan Asaf, who was cataloger of the Grolier Club in the mid-80s. He died at 27. He was a blue baby who was never uh, in very good health. His mother and father gave us his collection of reference books on the history of the book. Many of you have seen his book plate. His portrait hangs over the door in the Book Arts Press classroom. It was the first major gift of new books that we ever got. And it started us off on what has really been a remarkable career of buying books so that we can put them into classrooms. Talk to any member of my staff about how much more work it is to check a book out to put it into a classroom as opposed to having the book so you can just send it into the classroom without any further paperwork. All of our classes use new books in the classrooms. Many of you have a great many of them in your classrooms at the moment. In the courses that you're taking, it's no big deal. There they are, and the instructor holds them up in the belief which resists logical analysis, but all instructors I know believe it, that if you wave a book around in front of students, they are improved by this. <laughs> we had a further piece of bad luck, thanks to a piece of bad judgment on the part of the reference librarian of the Baltimore County Public Library in the late 1980s. He decided, without consulting anybody, that the staff of the Baltimore County Public Library, which is a suburban library specializing in relatively small, heavily circulating collections, he decided that the reference staff 
but the Baltimore County Public Library needed a really good library of books on books. And before it was noticed, he had bought several hundred of them. When it was noticed, he was reassigned. And the associate librarian of the Baltimore County Public Library System, who happened to be Jean Barry Maltz, who was the sister of Kathleen Maltz, who was a colleague of mine, suggested that no price would be too low for us to offer to acquire this collection of books. That is why so many of our reference books say uh, discarded from the Baltimore County Public Library System. But there were books like Mackenzie's uh, printing at the Cambridge University Press. Now, that is an expensive book, and it has been for a long time. And many other of our big, really expensive books. I've always been grateful to the unnamed hero uh, in the Baltimore County system. Since then, in part because the uh, 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 Friends of the Book Arts Press has grown so enormously, we've been able to add regularly to our reference collections, in which we've been enormously aided by Bookfinder and other online buying services uh, or switching posts for those who sell books. It's possible to put together a quite good reference collection in a relatively short period of time. Those who uh, go back before electronic book buying know that in the old days you carried a list and you went from store to store to store looking. And it could take you 10, 15 years to put together a reference collection, even if you had the money, because many of the books are hard to find and don't come up very often. The case in point is our collection in medieval books, which when uh, I was embarrassed, the University of Virginia's collection of medieval manuscripts is not a large one, I was embarrassed even to invite Roger Wick to come teach here until we had at least something to show him. So we spent a lot of money buying reference books, supporting the study of medieval manuscripts. Uh, so we could say, see, when he came here to, to contemplate the possibility. And uh, we've made major progress along this front with all of the other major collections that we maintain. In terms of money, it's the most expensive thing we do. We've spent nearly $400,000 on that collection in the past 20 years. These books are terribly expensive, irritatingly so, and yet you want them at hand and arranged again in our order when you want them. Of all the collections, however, that the Book Arts Press is concerned with, there's no doubt about it, whatever, the most valuable one is our collection of described books. This is a collection of 400 and something books largely junk, uh, but largely hand-pressed junk, printed before 1800, that were given to us uh, by any number of donors as being books which they felt they could most easily spare, in many cases, odd volumes, books of no textual consequence, books uh, in some cases that were not complete. We began using these books in our descriptive bibliography course to give students practice in uh, doing format and uh, other uh, exercises, format and collation exercises with old books. What you have at the end of your handout is a history in little of the formation of this collection. 
They begin on 17 and they go to 21, but they're in backwards order. That is to say, the most recent one is on top. Yes. Now, members of cohort, cohort 4 should avert your eyes from this, please. Because uh, this is a book they're using this week. If you look on page 21, you can see our first attempt at putting together a cheat sheet for the benefit of the instructor teaching students this book. And what you see from sheet to sheet are the progressive squawks of rage, triumph, and frustration of various instructors as they struggle with this book and try to make sense out of it. You can see when, by the time you get to page 17, which is not the most recent version, by the way, nor do you have all the versions. I, I only gave you five of the seven in the files, and not the present one. Multiply the amount of work that you see here by more than 400, and it gives you some notion as to why we consider this to be the most valuable collection of all. It is, I, I, I cannot begin even to guess how many hundreds of hours have been spent over the years on this collection by dozens of lab instructors. Now, you can ask, why on earth didn't you get it right the first time? Well, because you've got 24 students, each of whom are looking at uh, 10 or 15 books over the course of a week, and it takes a very long time to do this kind of work. So the course, like so much that concerns the Book Arts Press, just growed and only gradually has become intellectually respectable. It's been a long time, I think, since we've had any sheet come back from the lab instructors looking like any of the sheets that you have in front of you, because so many of the books have been used often enough so that we're beginning to get a sense, not only of what the book is, but also how to teach it. You can see that some of the uh, explanations and footnotes explain what students are going to find about the book and uh, a way to teach the anomalies or the curious features of that book. Keep telling us and me that we are a laboratory and not a library. It's easy to remind ourselves of this because though we have really a magnificent space in Alderman Library, it is finite. Now, those of you who haven't been in the basement have seen only a small part of our space. We have more space now in the basement, I think, for book storage than we do in any of the visible spaces. We maintain a large collection upstairs called Examples Chrono, which are simply chronologically arranged books that are of some interest to one class or another. We also maintain an even larger collection called Examples Chrono Reserve, which are books in the basement which come up as they're needed uh, upstairs by various classes. We maintain a collection that would probably fill the better part of this room of books that are used in uh, particular Red Book School classes and only in those classes. So that Nicholas Pickwood has 15 boxes that are reserved for his use in the basement. Sue Allen has, I think, about 20. Uh, this means that they're not used by anybody else, which is a disadvantage. It means that they stay in the condition that is the reason why the instructors chose them in the first place, which is a big advantage. And it means that a Nicholas Pickwood or a Sue Allen can come in on Friday, two days before their course begins, 
and arrange their books on their shelves and teach from them and on Friday or Saturday at the end of their course put them back so that the books really never age or age very little and in the whole business of Victorian bindings in particular this is immensely important Sue Allen says that you cannot teach cloth bindings to beginners unless they're in good condition because the beginners don't have the equipment to see through good condition to bad condition experienced people in the field can do that so it's less fun than it is looking at good copies Sue Allen was as struck as I was by the condition of the Linda Wilson Margaret Armstrong books that we acquired last summer and that many of which you see in the room this evening we're grateful to Linda Wilson's sister and brother-in-law Kathleen Wilson and Jim Thompson who have provided money for further gifts for further purchases in this collection and we expect uh, to add to it regularly we hoped to have a volume purchased on this fund to show you this evening but we couldn't find a copy of a Margaret Armstrong book in good enough condition to uh, merit spending money on it but they're out there and we will find them we're grateful to the Wilsons especially to Linda we're grateful to Sarah Hagelin the curator of this show that surrounds you please come and meet the Wilsons at the reception that follows immediately in the first floor Alderman Staff Lounge